You are listening to a message from Victory Alabang. Get the latest updates by visiting victoryalabang.org or like us on facebook.com slash victoryalabang. Really, it is a privilege and an honor to preach the Word of God. I stand only by the grace that God has provided me. And um, I, I love it when people talk about and think about some people being theologians. But in fact, all of us are theologians. The question is, are we right in our theology or not? Really? Right? When you think about it, there are so many things about our understanding about God that needs to go back to the word view. I am married. This is my beautiful wife, Isel. And um, we've been married for a little over a year. And I'm enjoying this season of marriage. In fact, we have been blessed with a four-month-old daughter. That's her. Yeah, she's cute because she looks like her mom. And um, some of the most frustrating things about um, the early, you know, the, the few months, the first few months of, of parenting my young lady is, um, if you're a parent here, you would know this. The first few months, they'd cry and it's just so hard to figure out why. You know, you've given them milk. I've tried to make her sleep. I would sing songs. All of my songs I could sing. I've, you know, I can't. And for the life of me, in my heart, in my mind, please let me understand you. I cannot understand what's happening. Please, I'd give anything so that I would understand my young lady. But it's just so hard. But every Sunday, think about this. We gather here, not just to talk about, but to understand a little more about a God who is infinitely wonderful, infinitely glorious, infinitely loving. And He is more than willing and more than able to talk to us, finite beings, Think of that for a moment. And that's what we do on a Sunday service. In fact, that's what we have been doing in this service. A little by little, we're trying to understand and appreciate more about who this God is. And we're in this series entitled Worldview. And what we're doing really, it's a play on the idea of worldview. Because all of us has a worldview, a perspective. Whether you like it or not, believe it or not, appreciate it or not, we have... Our, our perspective about God, about ourselves, about our people, um, about um, the things that we do are shaped by the perspectives that we've gathered from our past experiences, education maybe, um, relationships maybe, and these shape some sort of a lens through which we see the world and interpret the world as it is. And as we say, if we have the wrong word view, we'll have the wrong worldview. That our perspective, if not shaped by the Word of God, will really be erroneous. We live in such a world right now where perspectives are really rampant, all sorts and kinds of. The most prominent in my mind, you know, when I observe is the kind of perspective that you would observe in parties such as these. You know, um, I have been to one and I never really enjoyed him. Uh, but when you think about it, the kind of mindset that says, I am what I feel. You know, if I feel this way, therefore that's who I am, that's how I want to be. That what I feel is always right. But if you think about it, a little deeper of thinking, would know, you, would, you would know really that it is not always right, the things that you feel. And it is through the Word of God that we see the right perspective. You see, in this series, we're trying to talk about the beautiful Word of God. Last week, who among you here, you were here last week, we talked about inspiration. 
And we talked about that under um, the umbrella of the theology that says that the Bible is an authority. Now we're saying that this Bible right here, all 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, 1,500 years of writing, around 40 authors, a king, a farmer, a tax collector, even a Christian murderer is one of the authors of this book. It's all written by a God that is loving. We live in a world where authority is movable and questioned. You know, that the authority in the house is in question. Who's the authority here? The authority in this country may be sometimes in question. The authority of the society. But among you here, you know that the authority of Scripture will not fade away. That the authority of God, whether you like it or not, believe it or not, accept it or not, is true. It is there. And what we're trying to do is to appreciate this fact, this authority of God. And as, as we progress through this talk about the authority of God, there are so many ways to approach this topic. We can go all scientific and talk about how the Bible was the first to describe the world is round in Job. We can talk about how uh, the Bible testifies to the many things that was um, true of the world before. We don't know that, but the Bible says it's true. We can talk about how in the early days, in the 1940s, we've dug up the Dead Sea Scrolls that present to us the validity and veracity of the Scripture that we have, in fact, the most historical book, the best-selling book, how this book has shaped nations. But I think, personally, and I hope this is what I hope to put out as we study the Word, that the biggest, grandest, greatest proof of the Scripture is Jesus Himself. That if a man who was prophesied to live thousands of years ago would live exactly the way he was prophesied he would, he prophesied that he would die and he would rise again. And he did. I believe that's the best evidence of this living scripture. That's why we we'll listen from him as we read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. I'd invite everyone to stand up in reverence to this Word of God and really reflect how this Word of God not only has authority because it says it is, but really an authority in our lives. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it's beautiful and perfect. It's light unto our feet, and the, and the, the pathways are guided by its truthfulness. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today. Holy Spirit, cut through our hearts. Remind us of who you are and who we are. That as we live this life, we will find joy in you and love your people. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. Again, we're talking about the authority of Scripture. Arguably, some people argue that this is the part of our history where the authority of Scripture not only is questioned, but disregarded. You know, that, that many people, not only by thought, by words, sometimes and a lot of times by act, disregard the authority of Scripture. And um, last week, we talked about the importance of it being breathed out by God. 
In fact, I believe Pastor A, we, we, you stopped in this, in this beautiful text in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 to talk about how this Word of God, the theology or the doctrine of inspiration. You know, in fact, the word um, doctrine of inspiration is simply from the King James Version Bible translation of the same text. That this word breathe out in King James is translated as inspired by God. Literally saying that the word is simply birth out of the mouth of God, meaning it's spoken by God. This fancy Greek word, theonustos, or God breathe, is, is the word that encapsulates it. That if this word of God is breathed out by God Himself, it is one powerful, imagine that, the, the word of God Himself being breathed out to us. Not only that, that, that it is personal, meaning whenever you read the scripture, it is talking to you. You know, think about that for a moment. Um, I used to teach as a literature teacher, and um, whenever I teach literature, I say this a lot, that whenever I read, say, Shakespeare or Homer's works, I get the same themes, I get the same emotions, the same values, so to speak. But whenever I read the scripture, there's something new that it brings into my life. A testimony not only to its power, but really to its personal purposefulness in our lives. And not only that, this text talks about how this is profitable as well. That if it is inspired by God, it is truly authority. That if it is theonustos, it is God-breathed and therefore the Word of God. As we talk about authority, we need to think about how this Word really is. The thing, the guideline to which our lives fall into place need to ask ourselves about the questions that maybe, just maybe, we are asking about the Scripture as well. Today, we're going to zoom into one of those, two of those doctrines under the idea of authority. So we have three basic doctrines in authority. The first one is inspiration. The other one is infallibility. And the last one is inerrancy. And today, we're going to look at infallibility and inerrancy. That these two words, so to speak, are important into our understanding of Scripture. Quick definitions. Infallibility. Infallibility is that the Bible is incapable of failing and therefore permanently binding and cannot be broken. In short, in Filipino, I like translating it because it captures the word correctly and really beautifully. Infallibility means hindi nagkakamali. Infallibility. That it is not wrong, nothing's wrong there, and it would not be wrong in any way from this point on until Christ returns. It's infallible. That it is incapable of failing. Another term here that we're talking about is inerrancy. Inerrancy simply means that the Bible is without error. In Filipino, walang mali. Right? So, hindi nagkakamali, it's not, it's not gonna fail. That you stretch it in a lifetime of this earth until Christ comes again, it would not be wrong. Anything that it claims about itself is true. Anything that it says about who we are is true. Anything about it says about who God is is true. And also, that it has no error in its original work. Now, 
in the Philippines, maybe, you know, I grew up in a very religious family. I grew up in a town called Batangas. How long have you been to Batangas? You know, we, we live near the Basilica of Taal. And, and there's a really big church there, really big Catholic church. And most of the folks there, at least my grandparents, are very, very, very religious. And we had loads of Bibles. And, and um, rarely do I hear them, in fact, question the inerrancy nor the infallibility of Scriptures. But in our world today, the attack towards the infallibility of, and inerrancy of Scripture is not just a thought or word attack. It is in the way we live. That whilst we may agree that it is infallible and inerrant, a lot of times our lives does not speak to its infallibility and inerrancy. And therefore my prayer is that as we listen to Jesus' words, we would listen to it and hear God piercing through our hearts and how to live this infallibility and inerrancy. We're looking at a familiar text in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. Uh, in fact, um, you might remember we talked about this in our series entitled Redefined. When we talk about how Jesus is a, redefines the many things in Scripture, not changing but giving a better perspective of what it truly is. This familiar text, um, what has happened here is that Jesus was born and he attracted a lot of followers. And whilst this is ongoing, a lot of followers, he went into this mountain, this hill, so, and then started preaching. Talked to them about those who are blessed. And, and as he discussed who these people are blessed, people started thinking, wow, this is a different kind of kingdom. That in Jesus' kingdom, blessed are those who are weak. In this kingdom, blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who are mourning. See, it's an upside-down kingdom that Jesus is presenting. And people started thinking, and he's, he, from this point on, he was saying, uh, you are the salt and light of the world. You see, these people have been waiting for a man or a leader that would not only lead them, but also would change the way they live their lives, would change the oppression that they feel, from the Roman Empire, which they are under, this Israelite people at this point. And then Jesus suddenly cuts and tries to try and redefine again something in their mindset. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Because people might think, you know, um, I was imagining the scene. While they're thinking about the Beatitudes, how they are blessed if they're others, you might think, wait, so therefore, the law and the prophets, which means the Old Testament law, which means the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, capital P there, because it's the, it's the, um, the title of the book of the Proverbs, the Nevi'im, okay, how they are already abolished. So these people might be thinking, okay, so since Jesus is telling me about this really changed kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, maybe we don't need the law or the prophets anymore. We don't need the text. We don't need their Bible, so to speak. The spirit of this thinking continues until today. That people think that maybe we can do away with the Bible. Not because Jesus is here, you know, unlike this situation right here, because Jesus is explaining all these different things. But because maybe we have created a different God 
that we feel like. Maybe we could just abolish, do away with the Bible. Maybe we could just put it on the shelf, never to touch it again. Maybe we could just open it in our phones every time we feel like so. Maybe we could just abolish, distort, and change the law. See, this thinking nowadays permeates not only the outside world, the people who don't go to church, but sometimes people who are inside a church distorting what they think about the Bible. There are many attacks towards this Bible, the truth of what it says. But Jesus says vividly that He came not, not to abolish them, but do fulfill them. This word fulfill is a curious Greek word because um, not only does it say it will fill the gaps of your understanding of the law, but Jesus promised that through Him, the law, the Bible, makes better sense. And it makes, it should make, the sense that would meet who they are as people. This is where I'd like to deduce, I'd like to ask God for us to understand the idea of infallibility. That if Christ said, no, I'm not going to abolish what you have been taught since you were young because they have not failed and you will not fail, I will fulfill them. This is where we get our idea of infallibility. That it will not fail. I like um, simplifying the idea of this doctrine, infallibility, to this statement. That the Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is trustworthy. That I can put my trust a lot of people ask, so, so what? If, if, I can, if the Bible is trustworthy, I, I actually think it right. This is so important that the Bible is trustworthy. Because week in, week out, we open the Bible, we ask God to move our hearts towards Him, and we're not just asking you to invest time in reading the Bible. This is an invitation not to invest money. This is an invitation to invest your life your eternity in what the Bible says. You see, if we're wrong in our understanding of the trustworthiness of Scripture, a lot of other things does not fall into place. A lot of other things would crumble if not of a trustworthy God who wrote His Word. That it is trustworthy. Many people sway into the beliefs of the world that maybe, well, you know, how, how is that 2,700-year-old book relevant to me today? Its values are outdated. The way it thinks, the way it prescribes life, the way it prescribes marriage is outdated. Today, marriage can be just a transaction. The Bible says no. It is a covenant. Today, the prevailing thinking is that whatever I feel I would like to do, I would do. No, the Bible says you shall serve. You shall love the Lord your God. That you're either servants of the world or servants of God. You see, this invitation to trust the Scripture is a heavy invitation. That's why if you're here, you're a visitor, you're coming into church and you go, huh, I do not know if I'm going to put my life there. Because if I just ask you to just listen to this talk and just go out and live on your life and not care at all, that would have been maybe a good afternoon, but eternity rests on our understanding of the trustworthiness of Scripture. Our eternity, 
our joy in Christ, our love for other people. The Bible is trustworthy. And that's what Jesus is saying. That as he tells them, no, 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 don't ever think that I came to change the law, what you've been told. I come to actually show you further how it's fulfilled in my life. As I've said, the greatest evidence of the scripture is Jesus himself. Because we can argue about so many things about, really, you believe that the Bible is true? It's just a bunch of fairy tales. You really believe that snake talks? If God can create the world through His Word, He can create, you know, everything else. Um, But the trustworthiness of Scripture is in question. And as we ask God to work on this truth, maybe, just maybe, we can step back and consider how is this trustworthiness lived out in our lives. In the same manner, look at this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24. As Peter encourages the people to hold on to the hope that they have, he says, For all flesh is like grass. It's, he's quoting a, a text from Isaiah 40. And all its glory is like a flower of the grass. The grass withers. The flower falls. But the Word of God remains. And this is the good news that was preached to you. That this good news, this gospel, literally, that was preached to us will not fade away. It stands in eternity. The many things that we latch our lives into today may fade away. Popularity, money, relationships, sex, pornography, those many things, those other things that may be sin or not, If it's not in Christ, it can easily fade away. But the Bible, its truth, its good news is for eternity. We are sojourners, as Peter talks about. We are living in a world that we're foreigners in. That a lot of these things wouldn't make sense, but the Word of God gives us the light to which we are supposed to gear towards we are sojourners we are travelers for a moment i love thinking of the bible as a window that allows me to see a whole great new world that otherwise i wouldn't see if i just look at my life otherwise i wouldn't see a brand new perspective of this life if not of the scripture. A psalm in chapter 18, verse 30, that this is God. This God is ways perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. I love the parallelism. You know, that's a that's a thing that psalmists would do. They would repeat things. This God, his way is what? It is perfect. And the word of the Lord proves true. That term there in Hebrew is almost the same as perfect. And it's because it's the perfection of that, the function is that it is a shield. It covers. It protects. Think about how the scripture is our shield in all life suffering, but not only in this lifetime, but in the lifetime beyond this. That this is the word of God, that we can trust what it says it's, it'll do. The trustworthiness of Scripture transcends the many things of this world. That 
if we could believe that this Bible is trustworthy, we could go beyond the many things that this lifetime can offer. And I think 1980s, a, a popular thought came in, not only in universities, but in popular thinking. The, the, thinking of, the, the popular idea of positive thinking. Have you ever you know, come across that? And um, in fact, some university, a university that I know of, um, eventually developed a discipline, positive psychology. You know? But you, when you think about this, any philosophy that is not grounded in the word of truth, when stretched out in eternity, would simply snap. Even positive thinking. Like no matter how positive my thinking is, if that is stress in eternity, I know for sure a day I would fail in thinking positively. That no matter how I force myself to think positively, it's not working. Why? Because the Bible says a different thing. That I don't need to do think positive. I need to think Christ. I need to think, I need to fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That in my own self, filling myself with joys would never be enough for me, no matter how positive I am. That I need Christ so much so that if I don't have Christ, my life would just fade away and result in nothing. See, the trustworthiness of Scripture is a guide to us towards not only this life, but to Him. As we continue, you look at the, the next verse and somehow it parallels the same idea with 17. For truly, He gives that reason, for truly, I say to you that until what? Heaven and earth. You know, when you, when you read Scripture, like to, it's important to imagine how Jesus is using these images. How until heaven and earth pass away, not a what? An iota, not a dot. Not the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet or the smallest mark in the Hebrew alphabet would fade away. He's comparing. This is contrasting. So just imagine Jesus saying, not this whole great grandeur, the whole heavens, and this majestic plain lands, the whole earth. This will fade away. But my word, even the smallest thing would not. So if the smallest things could not and would not, the greatest promises would not fade away. Because it is in this scripture that we see Jesus saying and telling us, until all of it is accomplished, until all of it meets its purpose. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God. Love that idea. Every word of God proves True. He is, again, the image of the poet. A shield to those who take refuge in Him. That this word is like a shield. This image of a God that is able to take us in. But I like to zoom into that idea. Not an iota nor a dot. It proves to us that not only is it infallible, but every single part of it is inerrant does not contain errors. Simply mean, I like saying that inerrancy is summarized with this statement. The Bible means what it says. That if it says God created the world in seven days, it does not mean otherwise. That if God said nothing is impossible to Him, 
it's just not, well, you know, some things are a little bit impossible, but this, most of the things are. No, it does not contain errors. Inside a church today, there are many people who maybe even in honesty go to that point where they ask, maybe this part of the scripture, I'm not sure if it's true, but you know what? Mm. The Bible says no. All of it is true. And if we can believe in a God who breathed out His Word, who breathed out everything into existence, we can believe that He guided His Word to be fully true, to be fully without error. Fairly recently, I think, there was that controversy of the missing verses in the New Testament. Have you ever heard that? You know, they say around 16 verses missing in the New Testament. Quickly, quick example, Matthew 17, 21. In fact, if you search your Bible, Matthew 17, 21, if you're using ESV, it's not there. And you go, huh? Really? <laughs> the first time I checked it, what? Oh, yeah, it's 20 space 22. <laughs> it's not there. There are other places in Scripture. And many people say, oh, therefore the Bible is corrupted. Therefore, maybe through translation, they have lost its way. And I tell you this, no part of the scripture is wrong if understood correctly, if studied correctly. The missing verses in the scripture that they say are missing are variations that might have been added by early translators. Therefore, the newer translators removed it. How did they know? Better texts came out, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Therefore, rendering some of the words, well, this is part, it's not really there. You know that the verses in your Bible and chapters are not inspired, right? <laughs> the numbers are not inspired. That's why when you skip a number, it's not a problem. And therefore, the missing verses are not really missing. They aren't just there. In fact, the faithful translators of NIV, ESV, actually put those footnotes there. If only we will study, right? <laughs> if only we would be Going out of our way, getting to know more about the scripture. I like thinking of the scripture as a way to get to know more about God. And it's truly an important thing. A lot of people say in the present day, well, you know what? All I need is Jesus. All I need is the gospel. If I have that, I don't care about your theology nor your doctrine. You know, it's okay. I just want Jesus. My question is this, if you don't have correct theology nor doctrine, how do you know that your Jesus is correct? What shapes your view of Jesus is your understanding of the truthfulness of Scripture. If it is trustworthy, and if it is, does not have errors, the question I think remains, so what? If I know that it is not, you know, in fact, some of you, if not a lot of you, if not most of you, could care less because I actually believe that it is true. I actually believe that the Bible is trustworthy. And is, but the question is, what is that gap in between knowing something is and living based on that knowledge? Because I can know something and not live based off it, Right? You can read so many things and go, well, that's true. But how that affects my life, I don't care. Because 
when I look at the scripture, I feel like we need to bridge that gap between just knowing what it is to really living to what it says we are. Because if the Bible is trustworthy truth, I believe it is because of a loving, liberating God who inspired it. If the Bible is fully true, it is because a loving God who wants to talk to His people inspired it. And then not only that, not only love in the sense of emotional aspect, but it is this love that sets people to live free. In fact, in that verse that we're reading, Jesus is telling them, I would not abolish it. In fact, I would fulfill it. I would set free your mind of its entrapments. That's why I believe this preaching this Sunday is more than just hopefully a doctrinal study of infallibility and inerrancy, but truly an invitation. It's like this. Last night, my wife and I went to a restaurant. We, we, who among you love eating? Yeah, you know, me. We love eating. Obvious naman, di ba? But <laughs> we love eating and we went to this restaurant. We have this really good burgers. And we went home and my parents were asking me, oh, how's the food? So we described it to them, right? So the patty was really nice. It's juicy. It's, it's fatful, not fatless. <laughs> it's, it has all those, you know, veggies that I love. I like, I like the, you know, how it's, the sauce is really nice. But no matter how much I describe it for them, nothing beats them eating that burger. Right? I mean, I could go my way into describing, drawing even this burger. But until they go there and taste it, they would not fully appreciate it. I may tell you of the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, convince you even of its validity. But until you feast on this Word, until you yourself come to terms with a God who wants to speak to you, you would not fully appreciate what it is. There is a personal truth behind infallibility and inerrancy. They're not just doctrines that we declare and say. Behind it is a God who is saying, I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Behind the doctrine is a God wanting to commune with us. The Bible is a trustworthy truth because of the loving and liberating God who inspired it. Left to ourselves, we will be walking in the dark, drowning ourselves in sin. Left to ourselves, we will just enjoy this world and die like a party that ends with nothingness. I'm not sure how other people felt in that party that I went to, but after that party, I was tired and it felt empty. It was noisy. The food, I can barely eat it. But I went out empty. I'm not sure how those people are. Maybe the right description would be Spurgeon's words. We are amusing ourselves to death if we would not seek God. We would just amuse our lives in this world, bask in the short, joyous. But it is through the infallible, inerrant Word of God we find a Savior 
that is able not only to give us joy of the moment, blessing of the moment, a joy and blessing that is eternal, that goes beyond just sitting in the pew, but really truly loving one another, going outside, forgiving in such a way that not other people can forgive. Only Christians can hold to that truth. Because every day, we live in a crossroad. Every single decision is a crossroad. Either to affirm or deny the truth of the Scripture. Every single decision. Whether to go to a place or to answer a call. Whether to go to that party or not. Whether to um, answer that test in a certain way whether to do a business practice in a certain way, it affirms or denies the veracity and validity of Scripture. Every single decision. But I am glad that we're not doing this decision alone. That we're not left to force our way into fulfilling the Scripture on ourselves. What I love about this truth of the gospel is that it tells us all these things that we are to live up to. And then when we look at them, we go, that's impossible. And then a God who is loving tells us, that's okay. Because I will, not you. That this gospel tells us that when we look at the very pages of it, it is God who fulfilled the very requirements of this scripture. As we draw to an end, we look at Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Oh, no one anything, says Paul, except to love each other. For one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul is talking to a Christian, a group of Christians who he is exhorting that because we are new in Christ, we therefore should love one another. But not only that, you should see something that Paul is doing. I like how N.T. Wright discusses these words, that words are like suitcases. Until you unpack them, you'd see more of them. You'd see more information from them. Like when you look at the words, fulfilled the law. That it is love that has fulfilled the law. It is, it is a reminiscence of a love that truly fulfilled the law. The one expressed by Jesus when he said, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. It's this, this is this love. A love that made a decision to live a perfect life, die a gruesome death, rise again in glory. So much so to express that love for each and everyone in this room. He has fulfilled the law. He has fulfilled the what it says. Because truly, as we look at Scripture, it's infallibility and inerrancy. This is the ultimate evidence of it. That the God became man is not anymore on the cross, not in a tomb, not buried somewhere hiding. He rose again in glory. Therefore, through the lens of this worldview, through the lens of the scripture, cancer is not just a sickness. It is a testimony of a faithful God who can heal. Through the lens of scripture, money is not just a means to an end. It is a blessing so much so that it could advance His kingdom. 
that through the scripture, relationships are not disposable. They are expressions of God's loving grace. That in, through this holy scripture, we see a God who is not angry at sinners only. Because of grace, he is angry, but it is removed through grace. I hope and pray that as we think through the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture, we're listening to the words of the man who fulfilled it. Let's all pray. O gracious and heavenly Father, you have given us grace so much so that when we bow our heads and pray, we're talking to the God who created the universe. Lord, may we not miss this opportunity to interface with you, to talk to you, to know more about you. Oh God, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that the Holy Scripture would shape the way we think, feel, and do things. That through the Scripture, we are far more than just creatures trying to figure out the world we are purposeful individuals we have a great destiny not because of who we are but because of our God I pray that your truth would be that that of what is expressed in the preaching of Paul that it can cut through the heart like a surgical tool cutting before healing I pray that we come out of this place with a brand new desire to get to know more of you through your word. A brand new desire to live in such a way that declares your God above all. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.